This podcast is an unedited excerpt from an MCLE program presented at MCLE's Conference Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, please see the MCLE website. I'm going to turn it over to Amber Villa, who's from the uh, Massachusetts Attorney General's Office. Good afternoon. I'm Amber Villa. I am the Chief of the Neighborhood Renewal Division in the Office of the Attorney General's Office. Uh, We're a relatively new division, but we've been doing abandoned housing work uh, for about uh, 20, 30 years at this point. focusing largely on receivership, which is what I'm gonna talk a lot about today. Um, But it's not, as Stuart said, not the only solution to abandoned housing. So I'm gonna start by sharing my screen so that um, hopefully we can all uh, get on the same page. So give me just one second. So what do you do with an abandoned house? So start with a quick legal disclaimer. I work in the attorney general's office. And so I just need to warn you all that this is not legal advice, um, but is meant to be sort of an overview of options that we have in dealing with abandoned properties. So as Stuart mentioned, uh, there is statutory and legal authority for uh, the receivership process, which I'll go into a little bit about the process itself a little in a little more detail. But first of all, let's talk a little bit about the statutory and legal authority. So uh, the MGL 111, Chapter 111, Section 127I uh, is what we consider our receivership statute under the um, sanitary code. And what it provides is that where petitioners can show that violations at a property will not be promptly remedied unless a receiver is appointed and the court determines that such appointment is in the best interest of the occupants residing in the property, the court shall appoint a receiver. Now, I know I just said what's in the best interest of the occupants and we're talking about abandoned property. So how do we sort of square that circle? And the answer to that is the city of Boston versus Rachelska case, which Stuart mentioned in his remarks. Uh, At the time that it was brought in 2008 or decided in 2008, it had been an open question as to whether the receivership statute applied to vacant buildings. However, in that case, the appellate court found that the intended purpose of the receivership statute was to promote and ensure compliance with minimum health and safety standards through the appointment of receiver when failure to do so poses a risk of harm to the health or well-being of occupants of such buildings or to the members of the public who come in contact with or live near vacant buildings, not in compliance with applicable codes. So um, overall, the the court took the opportunity in the Rachowski case to extend the application of the the receivership statute to apply to abandoned properties um, because of all the public interest in seeing these properties uh, rehabilitated. So when should we use receivership? First of all, we should probably look a little bit at what other options there may be. And in in a municipality, there are several. Um, One may be taking a property by a tax title, in which case then the the municipality ends up owning the property and can can do with it what it it chooses. Other options may be condemnation and subsequent demolition if the property is in truly uh, terrible shape. And that can be done via emergency powers or the condemnation statute. Other options may be the urban renewal programs that are out there and possible eminent domain statute or scenarios. 
Um, there have been several uh, attempts in recent years to, to reinvigorate these urban renewal programs and the use of eminent domain and sort of a liabilities to assets situation where eminent domain is used to get the, the ownership of a property into the hands of a nonprofit uh, who can then remedy the property, uh, rehabilitate it, and potentially turn it into affordable housing. So those are some other options that are out there. Uh, when do you use receivership then? Use it when your other enforcement tools have failed, uh, where lenders and homeowners have abandoned the property, possibly where there are title issues like bad foreclosure, and that means that nobody is actually taking responsibility for the property. The owners left thinking that it had been foreclosed on, the bank never completed their foreclosure, or um, they, they understand that the foreclosure was faulty, so they claim to not have any uh, obligations to the property. So those lead to no one taking actual responsibility for the property, an issue that's just not going to be remedied quickly uh, unless uh, someone sort of asserts pressure on the situation. And then finally, really critical to the situation is having a willing receiver who has funding, is bonded and insured. So how do we go about preparing a receivership case? First of all, inspections uh, and cited violations. For us in the Attorney General's office, this is critical to making a receivership case. We will not take a case um, where a property has not have, does not have a demonstrated issue with violations of the sanitary code and where the owner has been placed on notice of those violations. So we want documented noncompliance and critical to a receivership case and making your, your case air photos. There's nothing that speaks to the situation on the ground like photos. One, they give a real flavor for the issue to um, the court. And also they, they, they provide sort of an undeniable piece of evidence as to what are the conditions, what are the neighbors dealing with, what are the police dealing with if they're quickly or if they're frequently having to visit these properties. For us then, if you if we work with a municipality and we're preparing a receivership case, um, we ask uh, someone in our office to identify the owners, tenants, or other interested parties. Anyone bringing a receivership case would do the same. We really have to find who's responsible for the property, who at the end of the day has full responsibility for the property. Even if they choose not to exercise that responsibility, we need to identify them to make sure that they have the opportunity for notice. Uh, sometimes this is gonna be really complicated. Uh, we recently uh, had a case in which the property was last transferred to owners in, 19, in the 1930s. That owner clearly had passed away. Their heirs had passed away and their heirs had passed away. And suddenly we were looking at uh, a very challenging property with a difficult situation with numerous heirs. Uh, but it was important to try to find as many as possible to give them the information uh, regarding the status of the property and their potential ownership interest. Uh, and in that case, we were able to motivate enough of the potential heirs to, to take responsibility, to hire someone to, to uh, probate the estate and deal with the property on its own. Ultimately, that property was demolished, as you might imagine. No one had taken ownership of it or responsibility of it for over 30 years. Um, but by identifying the owners, you have an opportunity to avoid receivership. It's one of the places where you can exert some additional um, persuasive ability to tell owners that if they don't make a change, that they, they, lose they could lose title to their property and they have the opportunity to, to remedy that issue. 
um, or if in many cases to sell and to try to recover whatever um, equity they have in the property and give another person, another owner, an opportunity to make the repairs. So once we in the office have identified the owners, um, we issue a demand letter. Uh, again, trying to uh, bring the owners along to get them to repair the property without having to put it in receivership. For us, receivership is really uh, sort of the option of last resort. If we can find a way for an owner to repair the property and not lose their, their interest and their equity in the property, we're gonna try to make that work. Um, by issuing a demand letter, while it's not required by the statute, it provides additional evidence of the unwillingness of an owner or the inability of an owner to comply with the code. Uh, in addition, it frequently stands out to owners as sort of an elevation of enforcement uh, and frequently draws a response that a municipality may have been able to, been unable to get on their own. Um, for us at the Attorney General's office, we find that by identifying the owners and issuing demand letters, truly only about 20% of our referrals tend to go into receivership. Rather, we're able to work with owners. Sometimes it takes a long time, but um, by working directly with them, we are able to um, bring the properties back into code compliant status without actually having to exercise uh, our receivership powers. When all else fails, that's when we move on to drafting our petition to request the appointment of a receiver by the court. Um, in drafting a petition, it usually includes an affidavit regarding the title search, again, demonstrating to the court that we've done our homework, that we're not running to court to ask for this um, extreme form of relief without having done our homework to identify the owners, reach out to them, try to put them on notice of the issues. Um, we also asked for an affidavit from the health agent outlining all of the violations at the property and the history of issues at the property. Uh, also attaching violation notices. Again, we're just trying to show that the owner has had an opportunity to understand the conditions at the property, to be put on notice of the requirement that they be remedied, but also to identify them so that there's some sort of consensus as what the job of the receiver will ultimately be. What is the receiver going to be responsible for doing in bringing this property back into code compliance? So this slide is sort of a disaster to look at as a slide, to be honest. <laughs> it's a lot of information. Um, but this is something that you can take with you and understand sort of what our, our process looks like in the Attorney General's office. But to walk you through it relatively quickly, um, we start off in the in the upper left-hand corner where the municipality is going to identify distressed properties and then refer them to our office, or in, in many cases, municipalities can choose to pursue a receivership on their own. We follow that up with a property site visit and an inspection with the town or the municipality. Really, um, my law school professor once used to jump on tables and would shout, walk the land. Uh, it still haunts me to this day. Uh, but it is excellent advice. And for us, we always do that. We walk the land. We want to understand what's happening at a property. And we encourage our municipal partners and other municipalities who may also be doing this as well, uh, independent of our program, to really walk the land, um, do a site visit, inspect, understand the violations that are there. Following that, for us, if a, if a property fits into our program, we're gonna do that title search, we're gonna identify owners and the parties of interest, and we're gonna provide notice to all of the owners and parties of interest. And then that's really where we get to our, 
our decision point, right? Do we have a cooperative owner or do we have an uncooperative owner? If we have a cooperative owner, we're going to work really hard with that owner to try to put a repair plan in place to monitor it until the property is back into code compliance. And if we get to that stage, if we get a cooperative owner, we hope to avoid court involvement uh, and leave those for the most challenging cases where maybe we have an uncooperative owner. Uh, with an uncooperative owner, we're going to prepare a petition, affidavits, and we're going to file it with the court. Uh, and then if we've made our case and the court allows our petition, there will be the appointment of a receiver. Now, in different areas of the state, that process looks very different, so I'm not going to go into it here. Um, but it's one of those things, if you're in a municipality and you'd like help with this type of issue with uh, abandoned properties in your municipality, you can reach out to us. We can talk much more specifically about what's happening in your area uh, and how best to go about this process. So I think it's important to note that not only can the Attorney General's office, but municipalities and tenants may also bring a receivership action. Uh, this process may differ if the municipality brings a receivership case. In those, in those cases, a municipality may begin with code enforcement action that escalates to a receivership action when the owner fails to address the code violations or violates orders to repair issued by the court. Um, these code enforcement actions may be brought both civilly or criminally. Uh, and in doing so, it should be noted that the court may have more flexibility to issue orders on the civil docket and may encourage a transfer to the civil docket. Uh, in addition, a receivership action uh, is generally brought as a civil action. So if our office were to become involved in a pending code enforcement action, we're generally going to ask the municipality to have it transferred to the civil docket before we intervene. Once the receiver is appointed, there's gonna be a budget process. The repairs are going to need to be approved by the court before they take place, before any money is, is uh, exerted at the property. Um, because again, any repairs done by a receiver are, are really uh, drawing on the equity of that property and the value of the property. So um, uh, that happens because a, a receiver is allowed to put a super priority lien on the property, uh, which allows the receiver to recover his or her costs uh, above all other lien holders except for a municipality. So uh, tax title, sewer and water, that takes precedent over the receiver's lien, but the receiver's gonna get their costs back um, before a mortgagee. So uh, again, and before the owner takes any money out of a sale from the property. So again, we're trying really hard to, to tailor the repairs to the, the needs at the property. But really the, the receiver sort of becomes the person in possession of the property. They're responsible for managing it in the absence of a responsible owner. Um, the receiver is gonna make repairs. And upon completion, the receiver is gonna foreclose on his lien under court supervision. So uh, as I mentioned, uh, receivership is an incredibly powerful tool. It ultimately can, uh, take away title of a property from an owner. So in doing so, um, there are some limitations to the scope of receivership, um, both under, well, under the state sanitary code. First of all, uh, it applies only to residential buildings. Uh, we don't have an equivalent for commercial buildings. There are common law receivership opportunities, but again, without the super priority lien, sometimes that's just not going to be feasible. Um, a second uh, issue and limitation of receivership 
um, maybe less prominent in some of our super high value communities like Boston, Somerville, Cambridge, where the property values have just taken off in recent years. But a low property value may make receivership economically infeasible, um, where the receiver can't pour the repair, can't pour money into the property sufficient to make repairs and be able to recover that through the, the foreclosure on their lien. That low property value may just, uh, in some instances, make it impossible. And in those in in those instances, we at the office are, are frequently looking for other alternatives. And it may be that there's a, an opportunity for a limited receivership where a receiver does a few things like really buttons up the property, prevents people from breaking in and, and deals with the most uh, dangerous conditions at the property. Perhaps there's, you know, an, um, a distressed swimming pool where that's a, a you know a, a real danger to neighborhood children. We may be able to get a receiver in to fix those things, um, make the property more secure and more safe, and and then foreclose on their lien. That may be economically feasible, um, but it's not going to bring the property back up to the the habitable condition that we're seeking. A, another limitation may be financing. So, for some entities, they can self finance these receiverships. Um, knowing that they will be repaid at the end of the day, the end of the receivership. Um, but where the receiver is a lawyer, sometimes this is a, a challenge to come up with the initial financing to get um, repairs started. And then finally, one of the limitations on receivership is that at the end of the day, when a receiver forecloses on their lien, they have no control over who purchases the properties. Uh, this is important for transparency purposes, but it does provide some challenges where we have neighborhoods um, that have had a historic population and where property values are changing the nature of that property of that neighborhood. And so as population changes that can be um, can't be stemmed with receivership generally. There are challenges in maintaining the composition of a neighborhood. You sort of um, you know, the concerns of gentrification, when a property hits the, the market um, through an auction or otherwise, and, and the receiver can't control where who purchases the property, it may be that another developer purchases and makes additional repairs or just starts to hold property in a way that, that, that starts to change or contributes to change uh, in a neighborhood. So that's one of the challenges we face with receivership. 